Hello, welcome to another episode of Unpacking Neuroqueerness. You might remember episode 21, I had my grandmother Theo Gund on for a little conversation. We are continuing that today with part two. Um, welcome, Grandma. Thank you, Gino. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so I had some related, uh, a little bit to something we talked about before, um, around your, your family history, specifically the history of your mom, uh, her mental health challenges, and, and how that was for you, um, so if, to the extent that you're comfortable, um, you know, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Good, okay, thank you. I would like to start by saying that these are my own personal recollections. I certainly am not an expert on neurology, autism, or mental illness. I just want to share what I've experienced um, in the hopes that uh, it can be helpful to someone. But please um, don't take this as gospel because this is simply my own idea and recollection. Of course. Okay. So, um, the uh, experience that I had with my mother was that in the 50s, when I was just a little girl, I was born in the 40s, my mother was diagnosed as hyperkinetic. And I don't even know if they use those terms anymore, but my mother had a racing brain and some you're hyperkinetic and I'm going to give you tranquilizers and in the 50s they started the parade of tranquilizers and I don't recall um, the names of the tranquilizers that they gave my mother to deal with her speedy brain um, so that speedy brain morphed into bipolar disorder when my mother was in her early 30s. And uh, my mother suffered from very severe bipolar disorder, also called hypomania. Um, and uh, she complicated that by having problems with alcoholism and addiction. So it's very challenging to determine uh, her fate prognosis and her her dealing with her mental illness because the alcoholism interrupted um, progress. So uh, my mother was treated with lithium, which she didn't like, and she wouldn't take her meds consistently. So there were many really serious episodes of mania mom was hospitalized many times with the mania. Uh, she would get superhuman strength, stop eating, act out in a variety of really destructive ways. And it was mainly many, a couple of decades of the mania um, treated off and on, I'm sure, with different meds and multiple 
segued into a depression which lasted six years, a really serious depression, and um, there were many suicide attempts, and um, she, she did die at the mm. end of the six years. She died at age 64. Um, she was extremely smart. Many bipolar disordered people are above average, but she just couldn't handle that thank you for sharing that first of all um it just it must have been really um stressful and uh unpleasant to to go through um i mean to watch her go through um and i think it shows i don't know like if you agree but i think it shows maybe how the pathological system really did her a disservice because um, I feel like maybe if there had been more support and understanding um, from, you know, her doctors or, or such, um, then instead of, of this, oh, you need to be medicated with all these crazy medications and maybe things would have been different. I mean, I don't know. Um, In some, well, it is, they label it as a disorder. Uh, a lot of people, particularly people that don't have a lot of exposure to information about autism or that don't know autistics, um, sometimes they think of it as a mental illness. But um, that's really like you said, you know, like in the case of the, the doctors and the medical system in the 50s, um, there was very little information, um, not enough information on how to like properly support these individuals. Um, and so I think that it's also like there's still, I mean, it's been changing a lot. And I think most people, I personally feel like the, the term disorder should be changed to neurotype or difference um, or even disability. Um, but I feel like there's still a lot of, like, and, and not all autistic people will agree, like, some autistic people still prefer to use the term disorder, um, although I, I feel like, unfortunately, some people do still think of it as a mental illness, 
Um, and then it goes back to the whole vaccine, the autism vaccine um, theory uh, that we talked about last time about how people would perpetuate this idea, how people would scare, how the anti-vaccine movement would, would use autism People not knowing enough about autism and thinking about it as a disease, they would use that fear of the unknown for to to motivate people to not get vaccinations um, for their kids because they would think that autism, or the narrative was that autism was worse than these diseases like MMR or polio um, that the vaccines would prevent. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I know it's been a long answer, but uh, I guess it just circles back to to the lack of information and at, especially at the time. And I think it is one thing it, it is that's really good is that it is changing now. And I think, you know, me having this podcast and so many other autistic people with their podcasts and their platforms, um, have been really helping change the narrative, not just around autism, but I think neurodiversity in general and mental health and mental illnesses. Um, so that's good to see for sure. Right, and I have been listening to your podcast and just learning so much about how the brain works. And that's so valuable to me Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you listening and, you know, so many others as well. And it's it's really nice to see, um, like, I, you know, just to see how many people are downloading and, like, not for ego purposes, but just because, just to see, like, wow, because this is, like, impacting people and, and helping people. and And it's, like, yeah, it's just been like a really great journey. It's it's been really great to to witness that. Um, I have also a few questions um, related to your relationship with me and like how it was. Like maybe things that you noticed about me. I know I wasn't diagnosed um, yet when I was a child, but. Um, Maybe, like, especially, like, knowing what you know now, like, looking back, um, what were, like, the first differences that you noticed about me um, when we first started spending time together? I definitely want to preface this by saying that my time with you when you were tiny, and I believe I met you when you were six months old. Yeah. Uh, you were born in Brazil. Your dad and mom came up to the United States, and I got to know you when you were six months old. And um, my time with you is some of the happiest, most satisfying times I've ever had. I've always admired you. Um, I think that uh, you have a lot of wisdom. You're a very kind person. We had fun together out here. Oh, yes. We had a lot of fun together. Taking the bus, um, riding, riding elevators, elevators mm -hmm. watching Barney, uh, 
were, it, it was just a wonderful uh, experience for me to be your grandma. So you had both problems. You were late in uh, walking. You, I, I definitely believe there were some problems with speech, um, expressing yourself. I sometimes had a very, very difficult time understanding your speech. So that was challenging, but I didn't, you know, I just thought, well, he's a late bloomer. Um, some noises elicited a really strong reaction. I remember that, too. Noise. Yeah. 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 Buzzing noises, noises, and sometimes my own voice was bothersome to you. So, um, the noise thing, highly, highly sensitive, uh, kind of late in walking, and a challenge in, um, challenge in understanding your speech. The part that, you know, shocked me when I learned that you had been diagnosed as autistic is you were a, an affectionate, cuddly, I mean, not excessively physical, but you did not repel kisses and hugs and me holding you um, from the very beginning. So that's never been, uh, maybe you're shuddering inside every time I hug you and kiss you. No. And having a nervous breakdown in your neurological components. But that part of the uh, discourse about autism was never a part of our connection together yeah i think um it also relates to you know um the idea and unfortunately this is still you know this is why a lot of people still don't get their diagnoses is, is um because a lot of providers think um there's still this idea that you have to fit every trait or every difference like that all autistic people um don't like hugs or that all autistic people are non-speakers or that all of them have motor difficulties and and then now because like even myself I'm just understanding a lot more and that's why I'm able to relay this information as well like of all the different ways it can present um uh and uh particularly like in women and people of color um not just like the stereotypical like young boy um but no it's really interesting because like um at the same time like i actually and i'll say like when i first got diagnosed autistic when i first got diagnosed autistic i myself um i wasn't very convinced of it either i was kind of confused because I had also not been taught, you know, what I know today. So I was like, I thought I had to fit those more, you know, stereotypical um, traits. And so that's why I wasn't um, really, uh, I didn't really believe my diagnosis at first either. But now, now it all comes together. And now it all makes sense. And it's really, I, I also remember our time together very fondly when I was younger. And it's, 
it's very interesting that you 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 brought up one thing that we did notice right away, which was my sensory sensory sensitivity to sound. Um, because I remember you had that Mercedes that would make that buzzing sound when you turned if you if you turned the key without before fastening your seatbelt. I think, yeah, um, and I remember it was this really loud buzz, and it, like, little did I know at the time, but it was giving me sensory overwhelm, um, and, and then there was also the, um, foghorns from the bridge, because, yeah, you lived near the bridge, um, the Golden Gate Bridge, and there would be the, these really loud foghorns that would go off, um, when the visibility was really low so the ships could see um and uh i remember you had to turn the volume of the tv up really high um so we wouldn't hear the foghorns in the background um so yeah now it just all comes together um so it's really cool to have this conversation and reminisce on those old times. Right. Um, I wanted to add a couple of brain um, facts about your genetic inheritance. I have a brother, one sibling, and he has five children. One of those five children has been diagnosed, was diagnosed early with autism yeah. or autistic. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he's oops, Wanna no, it's okay. it's okay. It's okay. I just, yeah, I haven't cleared it through him, so I hope um, there are a couple of sons. So one of my five uh, nieces and nephews was diagnosed very early and has lived an extremely productive, uh, happy, buried life. So that's another um, link. My father uh, was a um, I think uh, what they call a savant, he mm. could add, subtract, divide, and multiply multiple columns in his head. He could um, do that as fast as the early computers. Yeah. So he had wow. that spectacular, fun, mathematical ability. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that, and I was always very fascinated by that. Um, like to be able to do math as fast as a calculator. Right. Like, yeah. His head with multiple columns. So that, but you know, that was not integral to his career or his personality. It's just something that uh, he did. And I loved, I loved it when he did it. It was fun. Yeah. That must've been really interesting. Uh, really cool. My mother's uh, bipolar disorder, my nephew's autism, my dad's hyper-mathematical competence uh, are some, or what I can think of just offhand to offer to the genetic component, and that's that's my information. Yeah, well, that's that's very interesting. Uh, I do remember you mentioning... um, before about uh your father and uh his uh 
savant skills um, with math, particularly. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, I remember, I mean, even back when you were mentioning that when I was younger, I remember how fascinating that was to me. And now I kind of make that link, like, with neurodiversity and everything. Now, now everything is kind of, it just makes sense. Like, I see it in this whole different way. Um, yeah, anyways, um, I think those are all the questions, uh, that I have on my end, uh, yeah. So, um, if I can think of other things, perhaps we'll talk again. Yeah, we should. I won't miss any of your podcasts, and I've uh, talked to some of my friends, and my friends have listened and have been very much interested and very much illuminated and so it's so important to hear from you because we trust i trust medicine i trust modern medicine but to hear from someone who is experiencing what we're discussing not just diagnosing it analyzing it writing about it or treating it but who's actually experiencing it is so valuable and i'm very grateful yeah, thank you. I mean, of course, it's it makes me really happy to um, be able to put this information out and that, you know, people are listening and learning. And, and I hope this contributes to um, the discourse in the medical community, too, because, of course, the ultimate goal is to not have these separate paradigms, the pathology paradigm and the neurodiversity paradigm. The goal is that eventually they can integrate and the pathology paradigm can learn from the neurodiversity paradigm. Um, and instead of them working separately, they can work together. And, and that's what will really bring a lot more inclusivity in this world. So it's all really great. Um, I hope to have you on uh, for another episode for sure, because... I, I don't know, I think I mentioned to you, but the first episode we did, um, episode 21, is my most downloaded episode of all time with 117 downloads. And the second place is 41 downloads. So, okay, well, it's all those mm, grandmothers getting together yeah. to get to know their grandsons better. And it's a very valuable experience for me. And thank you, and I hope to talk to you soon. Yes, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Right. Bye.